Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Today's episode is dedicated to my old friend and colleague, James. James, sometimes you fight the good fight and the bad guys lose, like they're supposed to in the movies. But this time, they won. But you're one of the best. And this episode is for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 198. And as promised, it's a bonus episode. This is an episode that has something pretty interesting in it, a tidbit. Remember how I've reminded everybody in the audience that one of the most important things to do is to go back to the evidential matter that existed as close to the crime date as possible. President Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963, and the statements made, the official statements made, to the law and to the authorities in one form or another, whether they were things like depositions or statements made to the sheriff's department or the Dallas Police Department, or whether they were testimony that was provided under oath in front of the Warren Commission. All of that, which happened in the very recent aftermath of the crime or within months, well, I think it to be better than what was said later in life. After many, many years of contemplation and the opportunity to listen to so much of what got into the airwaves by others, and perhaps before any witness intimidation actually occurred or the threat of witness intimidation entered someone's mind. Obviously, the things that were said on the day of the assassination, moments after, and perhaps the next day or within days, were the best things to look at. And there is no doubt that those people that were closest to all of this, well, many of their stories morphed to be kind. And remember, sometimes I refer to the concept of Occam's razor in all of this, that the simplest of answers, the simplest of theories, is perhaps the correct one. Now, if you're a lone gunman theorist, you might hear me say that and shake your head yes and say, that's right, that there simply was a lone gunman sitting up on the sixth floor of the depository, who fired three shots and changed the direction that the world was going in. And that all you crazies out there, all you conspiracy theorists, hang your hat on the idea that such a monumental change in history could not possibly be effectuated by someone who has been characterized as so insignificant in the order of the world. That is Lee Harvey Oswald. I get it. And that's why this controversy lingers on in so many ways. But the reality of that is to ignore the preponderance of evidence, including so much eyewitness testimony associated with that moment in Dealey Plaza. You've heard much about Sam Kinney already, and quite frankly, I could have finished it all off at the end of the last episode. But as usual, 
I like to go back to the original evidence. The Secret Service was problematic that day, or at least their performance was problematic that day. And in the next episode, we are going to explore You Got It the Night Before. That is, what happened at the cellar and the press club. But before we do that, and before we understand how that affected what happened that day in Dealey Plaza, we're going to do one last thing with Sam Kinney. We're going to listen to the statement that he submitted on November 30th, just eight days after the assassination. Perhaps it confirms redundantly some of the things that you have already heard in the previous episode and episodes about his involvement and responsibility in things like the decision on the bubble top. Perhaps more importantly, it has an amazing lack of detail on the moments right there in Dealey Plaza. Well, perhaps with the exception of some of the most important things, where the shot came from. Now, as you know, I mentioned in the last episode that Sam Kinney's view on that changed, morphed a bit over time. But this is what he said just eight days after. So listen carefully. As I've said before, I think Kinney was one of the good guys. But who knows what forces of evil may have been lurking and cloaking all of this. I'm just saying. Will we ever know? I really don't know. But I do know that this is one more piece of evidence that should weigh on one side or the other as to what you think. Where you think the shot came from what you think really happened that day in Dealey Plaza. One interesting fact about the statements that were made by that small coterie of Secret Service agents who were right there in the follow-up car, right there in the motorcade that day in Dealey Plaza. Well, only a couple of them ever testified before the Warren Commission. I've mentioned that before in one of the earlier episodes. Why is that? Was it just too gory? Perhaps. Was it just considered to be repetitive? <laughs> well, perhaps, but in the world of law enforcement, if you have four eyewitnesses, you ask all four eyewitnesses to testify. There is no hard and fast rule that all four of them saw exactly the same thing. It is the union of those communications. It is the union of those assertions and the intersection of those assertions that as a law enforcement officer or law enforcement body, that you would want to look at and contemplate. Secret Service agent Rowley, the head of the Secret Service, gathered this entire group the weekend of the assassination and asked them to make statements. When he accumulated those, read them all together, each of them, individually and then collectively, what he came to the conclusion on was that there were many, many things that each of these agents said that had inconsistencies to them, or perhaps pointed to the fact that there were inadequacies in what the Secret Service did. And he knew that the Secret Service as an organization was on the line here for having failed to protect the president. He sent a number of them back to rewrite their stories after they had supposedly independently submitted them to Chief Rowley. The truth is, we don't know what secret narrative or even harmless comments that Chief Rowley made or instructions that he might have given at that meeting. We don't know exactly what the conversation was, but you can bet your bottom dollar that in a very simple sense, the messaging was, we've got to be consistent in whatever we say. That isn't in and of itself nefarious. 
It was a difficult and high-pressure circumstance. What we do know is that there was a tremendous amount of pressure by that moment to bend the narrative into a lone gunman theory. And there was a tremendous pressure to mitigate the blame that would most appropriately in later days be placed on the feet of the Secret Service. But that subtlety may have honed the testimony that was fresh in the minds of a handful of key eyewitnesses with trained eyes. Just like some of the things that went on at Parkland Hospital when there were discussions with the doctors. It's a terribly difficult thing to understand. On the one hand, in the aftermath, there was very little that anyone could do to save the president. And the most important thing at that moment was to soothe the country, to settle everything down, to tell everybody that everything was okay, that the world was going to be okay, even though it was a pressure cooker operating in the height of the Cold War. One can truly understand the practical reasoning of sanitizing the story. But the reality of that is that the American people never did accept that premise. They never did accept that they couldn't accept the truth. And because they weren't given the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, it became a so help you God, I'll get it one way or another. And so this year, we celebrated a 60th anniversary of the tug and pull between what happened on that date and the documentation of it by the government and the obfuscation of it by the government for the last 60 years. We have now curiosity that abounds beyond simple historical validation or nullification. In a time that is so turbulent, again, in a different way in this country and around the world, we want to know the truth. Will the truth set us free? Will we begin to forgive the government? Will the dividend that would be paid by paying respect to the American people and telling the truth, the whole truth about all of this, will it then deliver something very important to democracy in this country right at this moment? Will it help to bolster the confidence in those that currently run the government and have control of the security state behind some of its more cloak-and-dagger activities? Will it give confidence back to them? And surely that is a needed confidence, because in a world so dangerous, we should understand that there is a need to keep us safe from so much evil that is out there. And believe me, folks, it is out there. All we're saying as a member of this wonderful country that we are part of, and all we are saying, I think, in the larger world audience that listens to this and studies and has studied the Kennedy assassination over a long period of time, all we are asking is set the record straight. I know this has been a long diatribe, and it's because we are not just podcasting here in a random way. I think it is so important to transmit this story for historical purposes to the American people, young and old, so that we can better understand what happened. And certainly after almost 200 episodes, anyone, even though we're not even close to finishing the story, anyone can understand how complicated this passion play really was. Almost unbelievable in 1963, it's no longer one of those things that you put in what I call the Jetsons category. And for all of us old enough, you know what that means. Remember future science where folks transported themselves and 
floating flying saucers. They had little watches on their wrists with video, which everybody thought was more far out than almost anything. Fast forward just about 60 years later, and here we are, and that is reality. When you deal with evil people, you sometimes get down in the gutter. And so it's not surprising that some of our security apparatus had to fight the battle right there, right in the gutter at that moment. I think the American people should understand that sometimes that is a must to keep us safe. On the other hand, those that deal in that currency sometimes forget where the line is because it's not always a bright red line. And so they sometimes cross it. They crossed it a lot in those periods of time. Sometimes not for lack of good intention, but for lack of what this country stands for and for what their very charters provided for in terms of the authority that was granted to them. And it wasn't just granted to them by Congress. It was granted to them by the people. Sometimes it's even hard for patriots to remember just that when things get so far away in the democratic process. People like to talk about a functioning government in a democracy, but the real issue is that we are a republic. And the fundamental thing we have to remember is that the power ultimately rests with the people. And it is the democratic process that delegates that authority from time to time to someone else. And one has to remember that the someone else changes quite often and should, and it should never be for very long. I know this has been a big ramble, but sometimes you just have to remind yourself why something is so important. I love doing this podcast. The reality is you can't write this stuff. The number one category of things that people listen to on podcasts are true crime. I'm not surprised by that. You shouldn't be either. And this fits into that, even if none of it was true. But the crazy thing about it is, all of it is true. Perhaps more fascinating than any other true crime story ever told on the face of the planet. So it's not surprising that in the last couple of episodes around all the publicity that the 60th anniversary has tallied, that the popularity of this show has skyrocketed. Now, I'm thankful for that. But remember, it's an educational endeavor. I don't run commercials in this venue, and I don't have sponsors. And God willing, I never will. But I do ask one thing for all of you, particularly because there are so many new listeners right now, get over to the YouTube channel and sign up. There is a magical number of YouTube subscribers that will allow for some modest ad revenue that can support the out-of-pocket costs related to maintaining the show. The name of the YouTube channel is JFK, The Enduring Secret. It's the same name as the podcast. And over there, you're going to see some incredible shows coming soon from some of the most important people that analyze this topic. So get over there and sign up. Subscribe. It's free. It doesn't cost you a thing. And whatever we begin to generate over there in terms of ad revenue will go to support the educational element that we do right here on the podcast. As I said, this is not a commercial endeavor, and I intend to keep it that way if at all possible. Well, I'm done with that wander. So now it's time to listen to the rest of episode 198 of JFK, 
The Enduring Secret. Sam Kinney's report actually has a title to it. The Trip and the Assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, November 22, 1963. The actual report is divided up into two sections, the first covering November 21, 1963, and the second covering November 22, 1963. So we'll start with November 21. Special Agent Kinney and Special Agent Hickey arrived Love Field in Dallas, Texas at 6.05 p.m. We were on an Air Force plane, C-130, number 12373, Captain Roland H. Thomason, AC, USAF. On board this cargo craft was the President's limousine, 100-X, and Secret Service car, 679X. Upon arrival, I was met by Special Agent in Charge Forrest V. Sorrells, Dallas Field Office, and Special Agent Winston G. Lawson, White House Detail, that was doing the Dallas advance of the President's visit. I and Special Agent Hickey proceeded to unload the two cars and were escorted to the garage that was located under the main terminal of the airport. The arrangements were made for overnight security of the cars, and policemen from Dallas Force were put on duty through the night. Special Agent in Charge Sorrells, Special Agent Lawson, Special Agent Hickey, and myself then proceeded to the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Dallas, where reservations had been made by Special Agent Lawson. After checking in to the hotel, we had changed clothes, and at approximately 3.30 p.m., I met with Special Agent Lawson, Special Agent Hickey, Mr. Jack Pewterbaugh, and Warrant Officer Bales, USA, WHC. We then proceeded to dinner. On the way to dinner, we stopped en route at the place where President Kennedy was to luncheon on November 22nd. 1963. We spent approximately 30 minutes checking the seating and speaking stands. After securing the mart, we proceeded to have dinner. After dinner, approximately two hours, we then returned to the Sheraton Hotel and made our arrangements for the following day, November 22nd, as to the time and place to meet for transportation to Love Field for the following day's activities, and then turn to our rooms for the night. Now we'll move to the section of the report that relays the events of November 22nd. Special Agent Hickey and I arose from our beds around 7 o'clock a.m. We dressed and packed our bags, then went down to the lobby and checked out of the hotel. We went to the coffee shop for our breakfast. At approximately 8 o'clock a.m., we went into the lobby to wait for transportation to Love Field. At approximately 8.30 a.m., Special Agent in Charge Sorrells picked 
Special Agent Hickey and I up in front of the Sheraton Hotel, and we went to Love Field. We arrived there approximately at 9 o'clock a.m. Special Agent Sorrells took us directly to the two cars, with the understanding that he would be back at 11 o'clock so as to escort the cars to their location for the President's arrival at 11.35 a.m. Special Agent Hickey and I proceeded with our duties, getting the two cars ready for the day, which consisted of cleaning, checking oil, water, and batteries. Then a security check. We had the top down on both cars. It had rained all night and was raining when we arrived at the airport. I had, on two occasions, gone outside to check the weather. The last check, at approximately 10.30 a.m., the sky had cleared, and that meant to me that the bubble top would stay off. At approximately 11 o'clock a.m., Special Agent Sorrells came to the garage to escort Special Agent Hickey and me to the location. At this time, Special Agent Hickey stayed with the two cars, and I was helping Special Agent Lawson and Special Agent Sorrells line up the motorcade, placing the some 10 cars that were to be used. When the President arrived at approximately 11.40 a.m., I took my place behind the driver's wheel in the follow-up car, 679X. After a few greetings by the President, we proceeded on with the motorcade, through downtown Dallas, and on to the shopping mart, where the president was to have lunch. We had gone about 30 to 40 minutes and had just made a right turn off Main Street and then one block a left turn onto Elm Street. A five-minute signal had been given to agents waiting at the mart. As we completed the left turn on a short distance, there was a shot. At this time, I glanced from the tailgate of the president's car that I saw for gauging distances for driving. I saw the president lean toward the left and appeared to have grabbed his chest with his right hand. There was a second of pause, and then two more shots were heard. Agent Clinton Hill jumped from the follow-up car and dashed to the aid of the president and first lady in the president's car. I saw one shot strike the president in the right side of the head. The president then fell to the seat to the left toward Mrs. Kennedy. At this time, I stepped on the siren and gas pedal at the same time. Agent Greer, driving the president's car, did the same. The lead car ahead of the president's car, and motorcycles were told to go to the nearest hospital. The president's car and 679X then proceeded to the hospital at a high rate of speed, taking approximately six minutes. Upon arrival, I jumped from my car and ran to the right rear of the president's car, where I assisted in removing Governor Conley and the president. After all had been removed from the president's car, I opened the trunk of the car and put on the bubble top and a canvas cover. 
This took approximately 20 minutes. I asked for a motorcycle to escort the president's car and 679X back to Love Field. We left promptly, not stopping, en route to Love Field. On the way to the airport, I called by radio to Major Nedbaugh, USAF, to have C-130 crew at the plane with ramp down for loading of the two cars. This was carried, and the cars were loaded and the plane secured, awaiting our orders to depart Love Field, en route to Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland. The plane departed Love Field at 3.36 p.m. We arrived Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland, at 8.05 p.m. We were met at 6.79 by four or five agents from the Washington Field Office and some six motorcycles. We were then escorted nonstop to the Secret Service garage. After reaching the garage, the cars were secured by an all-night watch by White House police and Secret Service agents, pending an investigation. Signed, Samuel A. Kinney, Special Agent, White House Detail, U.S. Secret Service, Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Episode 198 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>